you no longer need to build and then find out what the implication of that is. You can run different scenarios. It's here already and it's just going to get better and we can only benefit from that. And it has to be driven from top level down because there isn't the incentive necessarily for everyone to work together. And you ultimately need the plant hive to fit the telematics so that you get visibility to the fuel. But their willingness to pay is not high for all the bells and whistles, understandably, because they don't get those benefits. Once you build something, really spend a lot of time getting feedback from the guys when they're using it on the sites and, and just how does this impact your day? Does it make a change? Does it make a difference? Hey, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name's Jeff Thompson. I work for a company called Machine Max, where really we are trying to bring data together that helps decision making on sites just improve efficiencies and yeah I, I work as the chief product officer and so a lot of my job is around understanding what decisions are to be made on site how data flows around so that we can build good products for the construction industry brilliant and when we were prepping for this the news came out around Langer Rourke and some of the the age-old challenges around small margins in, in in the industry pushing everyone to quite tricky positions. Yeah, and we've discussed the idea of, I guess, some sort of fatal challenges that it seemed to be just embedded into the industry. We've got all of these grand ambitions around decarbonizing the world, the great grid upgrades, and everything. But then looking ahead at these big challenges it almost feels like mission impossible right and that we've got the ambition and we've got the need to act but then intrinsic elements to the industry on how it's set up at the minute almost feel like we're set up to fail what do you think about that it does feel like it's a bit broken i think it's been interesting we've been trying to kind of enforce data and and digitalization and construction for the last five five going on six years and sometimes it does feel like you hit on a brick wall and it's really interesting because I think I can't quite pinpoint what the issue is but in general it's construction is a hugely complex industry projects run for a really long time it feels like there's not good there's a lot of supply chain fragmentation so there's a lot of players coming in and out and moving parts all the time it just feels like there's not a good communication handover of information. And and as a result, I think there's a lot of inefficiency with that. And it's really hard for people to take that leap of faith to innovate when you're working on such razor-thin margins that mm. the tendency is going to be to go to what you know. You've done these projects before, old schools worked. Let's just stick with yeah. that because we don't we can't we don't have the appetite symbol. Yeah. The industry fragmentation point is really important. And if you look at large construction projects, there will be thousands of suppliers all delivering that one end solution. And I think that's almost only getting worse in the sense of where the work is going. I I read a piece from McKinsey recently, which said that a lot of large asset owners are actually moving towards much more of a fragmented approach and and diversifying their supply chain. And there's potential for about a 45% shift in value away from tier ones. 
to a lot smaller players, which I guess further accentuates that fragmentation challenge. Uh, in our world, which mostly revolves around machines on a site, it's fascinating in UK because the rental penetration rate is close on 60%, which is one of the highest in the world. And so that means that on any construction site, typically 60% of your machinery is rented in, but it's not rented in from a single player. It's rented in from multiple parties, depending on the type of equipment. If you're looking for specific things, I mean, you obviously have your smaller equipment. And, and what's funny is if you take the perspective of data, a machine will only generate a finite number of metrics. You only need a single device or maybe a few to, to get the broad spectrum. But that is the only unit creating the data. But everyone in that supply chain is using a bit of that data. And so what you find is because the supply chain is so fragmented and often working in isolation, you might have multiple systems on a machine to get the same underlying data, these very limited data standards in the industry. So everyone's calculating things slightly differently. And so we really feel the impact of that, that fragmented supply chain. It's really hard to try and bring everything together into a single place. And I know that there's a big push at the minute, taking influence from the more industrial sectors like manufacturing, et cetera, with with design for manufacturing and assembly heavily influencing a lot of the design and build projects that we do. So that then really requires a lot better data quality and standards. However, I think I'm also seeing a lot of influence from the industrial sectors in a push towards more specialized suppliers where a specialist supplier will come in and fulfill one very specific need, almost a, a push towards sort of productization of capital infrastructure. So I guess that still really creates that challenge of, okay, how can we get all of these different data systems talking to each other? And how can we create that, use the buzzword, create that golden thread, right? Uh, and I don't necessarily think bringing the specialist in or creating that productization is much of a problem because in a way you're probably inherently de-risking it a little bit you're bringing in a specialist to do a job and i think that's fine i think if it goes back to the industry as a whole being aware that just creates inefficiencies if you aren't communicating correctly or making what your work visible and so i think it's wonderful that if that's the direction that it's going but then i also think that it's up to probably the construction owner to then mandate or get everyone to work together and say look these are the kind of data points that we want or information and just that work together as a supply chain to create and make it visible that could solve a lot of those problems that we've got specialists coming in and i guess from my side i see two key factors that that really feed back to your point there i see a push towards asset owners becoming what is often referred to as more of an intelligent client, much more of an informed yeah. client. And I guess that ability to be able to oversee all of the supply chain and bring together all of the little points and help everyone work a little bit more collaboratively and better. And I think that's a yeah. really important growth point that the industry needs to go through. And then yeah. the, the second side to that is then early contractor involvement, bringing in 
the principal contractors and, and supply chain contractors a lot earlier into the design process. So then yeah. you can then tackle the challenges or priorities around deliverability, constructability, affordability, et cetera. So I think those are two key growth points that the industry is going through. And I guess all of that comes down to better informed decisions enabled through data. Yeah, agreed. And, but I think it's also two-way street. So for example, big projects here in UK, giving kudos to the likes of HS2 and National Highways, who've been really good at getting the supply chain together to, to say, okay, these are our goals. These are what we want to achieve. Let's all work together to do that. And so there's a lot of forums and, and everyone gives inputs. But I also think the onus is on all of the specialists and suppliers within the supply chain to educate or inform the ultimate plan as to what the issues are because they're not going to be experts in those fields. So so it is a two-way street in that we need to create awareness on the ground what the issues are, but then work together as a supply chain so that we're not building inefficiencies with lots of different systems to achieve the same thing. Obviously, that brings down your cost um, and it has to be driven from top level down because there isn't the incentive necessarily for everyone to work together. And, and a good example there is, in my world, fuel is such a cost for, say, a tier one on a site. But actually, a plant hire doesn't, isn't really impacted by the cost of fuel. They're not the one footing that bill. And so, you know, you ultimately need the plant hire to fit the telematics so that you get visibility to the fuel. But their willingness to pay is not high for all the bells and whistles, understandably, because they don't get those benefits. And I think that's a really good example, and there will be multiple, of how working together to achieve a goal, you only need to fit it once, but we can share bits of data. And that kind of changes things too. I guess that comes down to incentives, right? Yeah. And, and having the right economic model in place to actually incentivize the investment to new capabilities like that. And yeah. like you say, I completely agree with your point of this really needs to come top down. Uh, it does. And so, so it is about incentivization for sure. I do, I do feel a little bit sorry for if you are going to create a, a framework from the top down probably must feel overwhelming about understanding and thinking of all the nuances that need to be thought of to create the right incentives because construction is just such a big beast, right? There's so many aspects to consider. I think that's the only way that ultimately you make that difference and get moving in the right direction. We sometimes see pushback from smaller supplies against these top-down requirements that are almost enforced upon them. And Sometimes that can be maybe preventative of bringing in smaller suppliers who are often the specialists into large construction projects. And I read just in preparation for this quite a, well, quite an incredible stat. It was 99.8% of the UK construction market made up of suppliers with less than 50 employees. So then if you think about a 35, 40 person supplier to maybe even an HS2. For HS2 to enforce certain data requirements or certain telemetry data or maybe hydrogen powered vehicles or whatever else on a 35, 40 person supplier, that almost seems quite a tough ask. So maybe that's also a barrier to 
really this sort of wide scale change that we need? So so that's interesting because I think it's from twofold. I think one is often these things are getting mandated to you and you don't really know why. And without that context, it doesn't make sense. So I think it's about also being quite open and sharing with the supply chain what, why you need it. What is the story behind this? Because often with context, people are more willing to get involved. And that, but that's probably more relevant when there's not a massive cost barrier to entry and it's more why do you need me to do this it doesn't really make any sense but certainly from a cost perspective I agree as as you say, SMEs are the lifeblood of the industry so I think I, I have in fairness seen a lot for a lot of the tier ones a lot of the bigger companies do have special SME focus within the procurement and the supply chain I think that has changed lots in the last few years and that makes a big difference and it your stat just emphasizes how important it is to continue doing that. It, maybe it's financing options or things that facilitate it. And your, your point around connecting the, the supply chain. I know that one of the big pushes at the minute, you mentioned it towards the start, this idea of interoperability of data across construction projects, across supply chain, etc. It almost feels like there are two different roads that a lot of the industry take when it comes to data. It's either interoperable data, so have all of your systems be able to speak to each other and have lots and lots of different data stores, but then it all comes together through that interoperability. And then the second road is then the idea of a data lake. So grab, mm-hmm. grabbing all of the data, consolidating it, centralizing it into one single place. And I think thinking about some of the, say, the large asset owner operators, large construction projects around the UK. I can think of plenty of examples for both, and I'm sure there are various pros and cons. As a a product, a data person within the construction industry, what's your take on which one is the winning solution? If I know which one's the winning solution, because it's also a bit reflective on where you're at in terms of your digital journey. I don't know. If, if there's a right or wrong answer for either, but I do know what's important is before these things are embarked upon or mandated, that's certainly from the outset, you, you have a good idea of, there's a strategy in place. So you've decided what bits of data are needed, how data is going to get mixed together, what does, and, and really what underpins all of that is having a really good grasp of what decisions need to be made on site. If you know that, then it's quite easy to trace your steps backwards. What decision do you make? What are the sources for that data? What bits of that data do you need? How often do you need it? With with those insights, then I think you're in a much better position to craft the strategy, whether it's a data lake or interoperability. But often we find you'll get into a conversation and someone will say, all right, I need 300 metrics. And so you get all these metrics coming in and then you're like, what are you going to do with it? And, oh, we'll figure that out later. And it, it also then just becomes overwhelming, right? Then you've got this massive system with so much data. You're just too sure what to do with it. And I don't think that helps anyone either. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I've heard that let's just get as much data as possible. Then we'll work out what to do with it. It will unlock so many new insights. We don't know what the insights will be or what the themes will be or challenges that we're trying to tackle here are, but it'll be great. So let's do it. <laughs> I've seen yeah. it so many times. And I think every industry has. Yeah. And I think there's a, you can understand why people want to do that. They want to future proof it because what you don't know now, you don't know. 
But I also think you can build good systems that are future-proof. It allows you to plug in more data as you evolve. But just focusing on basics and testing it now, getting a feel for how it works, then, then if you built it correctly, it's quite easy to build on that. Here's a question. What do you consider the basics in terms of key data points that folks should be focusing on in almost the start of their journey on a construction project? What key metrics or KPIs would you say should be the key focus points? That's a massive question. And I don't, I don't think I would be wise enough to give an answer from a, across an entire construction site, across all the different phases. But what I do know is that the answer will vary massively based on who you're talking to. For example, if you're talking to the sustainability team and they've just been mandated net zero goals, of course, one of the key metrics is going to be what's your baseline CO2, whereas your heads of are going to be ultimately, it's, is it, what's the budget? What is our budget variance? And what is it from a progress tracking perspective? But those are the two main metrics, right? So, so it very much varies on from whose perspective and. I'm purposely evading the question because I don't even know how to eat that elephant. <laughs> I get it. It was a tough question, right? The, yeah, because I, I think for me, it comes down to, there's the sort of the golden points around time, cost, quality, risk. So then beyond that, it's then a case of, okay, what are the key data points that can allow us to be more informed around those four key priority areas? And something I'm seeing at the minute is a... I guess almost like a bit of an evolution in the, the world of risk on construction projects, because for a long time now, a lot of construction projects will have a large pot of money put aside to cover risks. And just recently I heard about some projects with unlimited risk liability, which is just pretty bonkers. And I think one of the things that really excites me and one of the massive opportunities in the, in the sector at the minute is actually making better use of data to then actually remove risks earlier in the project so that then allow you to in turn reduce that pot of risk, freeing up the capital for elsewhere. And I, to me, it just fascinates me because it is the most tangible example of actually making better informed decisions where you say, hey, I was so worried about this one risk that was potentially going to hit us next year when we start delivery. That no longer exists because I'm now just much more informed around, say, the geographic area, the environmental constraints. It's a great one. And I think the other double benefit to that is by having access to the data that allows you to see that in a way that you can easily consume it also means that what we see a lot of is you'll have experts, really these top of the class um, People who have, they have an answer. They, they need to report on something, let's say, what our progress has been this week. And actually, they know inherently because they've been on this act for the week. And they, they are able to deduct, okay, we're on target or slightly below target. And these are the reasons why. But what they end up doing is spending the week downloading data from all the different systems right now, piecing it together in an Excel sheet. Just so that you can get the numbers to back up something that you already know, but you have to be able to report on it. So like you've said, just with our evolution and being able to see where you can de-risk things ahead of time and do that, that also means that assuming it's being delivered in a way that you can consume it easily, 
you're also saving experts in the field a huge amount of time and number crunching. So then they can, then it perpetuates or increases the exponentially the impact of that because you then also have more expertise looking at the things that matter instead of manually crunching things to get to the answer that they already know. Yeah. And I guess ultimately that comes down to making jobs more productive, right? Yeah. Really helping to reduce the time between the making decisions, tackling idling time. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the work that you do because you are a, you're a product person, you're a product specialist, building solutions to tackle some of these, these very manual, traditional challenges, such as where, like, where are my people on construction sites? Yeah. What, what does productivity mean for you? It's, at the moment, it's, it's through the lens of a machine. So when we, we're thinking about productivity solutions, it's typically thinking, if we have a target, a good example is going, creating a tunnel. You have tunnel boring machines, there's dirt coming out of those or from those tunnel boring machines. And so in our world, being productive is making sure that equipment are moving the output of that tunnel as quickly and as efficiently as possible so that you can progress to the next stage. And if you're doing that within the target um, timeline, a lot of timeline, and you're meeting the, the tenor, and actually that's considered the height of productivity just from a day-to-day -day perspective. And so really solutions are looking at that. And that comes down to your original metrics that you're talking about is just on time, on cost. So it's productive because you had a lotted amount of machines that could do it within a certain budget so that you can move on to the next phase. So in short, that's probably in, in my world, roughly how I would think about productivity. And in terms of equipment, just idling on construction sites, what contributes towards that happening? I know that on construction sites often usually comes down to people and people's availability. And people just doing people things, maybe turning up to work slightly late, maybe spend a little bit too much time having their coffee at lunch, whatever it is. Is it a people challenge that we have equipment sitting around idling or is the equipment breaking? What do you see? So I, I would say there's roughly two buckets. Uh, one is just people operating, but I think you often need context on a Last weekend, it was minus four degrees. You have an operator in a machine. Of course, they're going to want to have a heater on, even if the machine is not maybe doing productive things. You want it running so that you can heat up the cab. So there, there definitely are things like that. But there's also things, the other side of the camp is not about the, the operator. You might have a whole host of dump trucks about to go get loaded and, and there's one wheel loader, but there's 10, 10 dump trucks. That, that's a, a bad design. Or there's congestion coming in and out of the site. And as a result, like we all would on a highway, your car is idling, trying to get through. It definitely needs to be considered an operator does have an impact and you do get better and worse operators, but you also need to understand why they're doing certain things. And even in the example of it being cold, a lot of our clients have put in electric in-cab heaters so that you don't need to run the machine necessarily to warm it up. Or we had an instance with a customer who saw that at lunchtime, they, everyone was just sitting in their vehicles and having their lunch. And you're like, actually, if we put a comfort cabin, really set it up nicely and encourage everyone to get out, 
that ultimately led to a significant savings. It also comes down to being more sustainable because 60% of your diesel burnt on site is typically through equipment and the stats for equipment are about in construction 50% of the time that it's on its idling. So if you just then rationalize it also from a, a CO2 perspective, you can have a bigger impact. It's just nicer. You're just going to be a better person if you can get out and have a nice lunch in an earth. So long answer to your short question yeah. is that it varies, but it's not just the operator. We need to be aware of that, the whole ecosystem around them and how it works. The access point was really interesting. What's your take on the world of 4D scheduling? So you've got the animations of, hey, here's what our construction site's going to look like next week. Here's all the diggers. And you can do that planning using animations tagged into your schedules. Is that, do you believe in that? Yeah, for sure. So I come from mining and a very big part of mining is simulation of your whole cycles. And so I think it's, I think it's an excellent example of how tech and, and increasingly AI is going to, but it really is like running those different simulations and you make a change and the impact. Those are examples of tools that are just actually going to pioneer the way or completely change the way in which we've done things before, because you no longer need to build and then find out what the implication of that is. You can run different scenarios. And I, th I think, I mean, it's here already. And I think as that advances, it's just going to get better and we can only benefit from that. It's, uh, and also it's just pretty cool, isn't it? Seeing well, these, that's the, thing. the little animations it's, of dump trucks moving around. And that's also something that the industry needs is a sexy factor that will bring yeah. in the younger generation and add more tech and things like that. A lot of those developments in construction mining have actually come out of the gaming industry from a tech perspective. And you also get like in-cab simulations and those kind of things. And I think we need to promote those tools more because it makes construction look more attractive to young people, which we need desperately. I think there's definitely so much value in, in, in getting people really just excited about their role. And it all comes down to people, right? And yeah. for your role, developing product solutions that are used by people on construction sites, how do you approach this? Do you go to construction sites and get feedback and, and hear about the challenges? What's your typical approach? I know that. I mean, I, yes, I, as much as possible, try to get a time with anyone who's willing to talk to me. Unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the time when you reach out to people, they think you're trying to sell something and you're like, just genuinely want to know what a day in, in your <laughs> life is on site. Just, Actually, just an example of that. Tell me about your problems. I will help <laughs> you. <laughs> and just want to, but, but that, that is, it's a big part of what our team does is A, once you build something, really spend a lot of time getting feedback from the guys when they're using it on the sites and, and just how does this impact your day? Does it make a change? Does it make a difference? But in, in even prior to that, in building solutions, um, really what I like to look for is tell me what you're doing and show me your Excel sheet. Everyone has an Excel sheet that's hidden somewhere and they are going in. And if you can get the airtime to be like, okay, where did this data come from in that column? Where, what system do you get that out from? Why are you trying to achieve this? I think there's so many clues. And if we can digitalize that process and get all of the data that's required to populate it into a single place, 
that's the key. That's what's going to make you a really successful product creator is that you can save someone time and let them do what they're just really good at doing, making a decision based on the facts that are there. That's so interesting as a as an approach. And because I'm thinking now about all of the conversations I have on a day-to-day basis, everyone has that go-to Excel spreadsheet where they do a little bit too much of their job on that one Excel spreadsheet. There's a lot of risk associated with it, but it, it's amazing. So you almost you almost focus on that. You say, okay, so show me what actually your day-to-day looks like. And yeah. then how do you make decisions? And you focus on that as almost like the sort of the little opportunities and the golden nuggets. Yeah, exactly. Because if we can solve that, then you're breaking those barriers. The example you've just said now is 100% correct and exactly where the problem lies. Everyone has an Excel. How many people have similar Excels that are using slightly different data to make up and are making decisions from metrics that are differently calculated and that actually scares me big time as to how many decisions are made from that. And if you can systemize it and put it in a single place so that you know that everyone's data inform the Excel or ultimately get rid of the Excel is, is coming from the same base, A, you can ensure that everyone's working from the same hymn sheet. But yeah, B, like, just it solves that communication problem that we said at the beginning. If there's lots of different suppliers and parties and people involved, you have a single point of data and accessibility and coming into that. So yeah, I feel super strong about that. And that is a lot of our process around where we start to to build products is, okay, what does the day in the life of a person look like? What are all the manual processes that they're doing? And how can we improve that? Question is, people really like their Excel spreadsheets. People can oh, be protective do. over them. How do you take out the Excel spreadsheet and, and swap it over? How, how do you deal with that, I guess, that sort of organizational change element, that, that pushback? I think everyone likes to feel viewed and it comes down to that incentivization. You're painting that picture. That, for example, I've just undergone a, a whole Excel analysis. I'm terrible that I'm as much of a guilty party for this, everyone else. But in, in really analyzing who's using our products across the business, what revenue we get from it. And whilst that was a good project for me, what was interesting was when you started talking to other parts of the business, the marketing team, the sales team, they'd be like, oh my goodness, that's super useful, that bit of data. And, and so that incentivizes me enough to make it accessible to everyone, knowing that the work that I did is going to have a really good impact and, and influence on other people and actually ultimately make some people's jobs easier. And I'm pretty sure if you use that as a fundamental for incentivization for your Excel sheets is excellent. Why don't we share it with more people? Because they also want to use the benefit from your hard work. No, many people who are going to be like, oh, no ways. I don't want to help anyone else with that. Well, one of the things I love about our industry is if you go to any project team, cross-sector, and you look at all of the folks working on that project, it's just a bunch of some of the most intelligent people going. And with everyone sort of being within the engineering space, not necessarily an engineer by, by background, by, by education or anything, but working within that sort of engineering space, everyone has this sort of innate passion of solving problems and, and solving their own problems and inventing the solution. The amount of conversations I have on a day-to-day basis where people, someone said, oh, this thing was really bothering me, or 
I, I use this one data point on a day-to-day basis. So I built this and it just saves me loads of time. And then they won't talk about it at all. They won't shout about it, but then it will save them so much time on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's just incredible. Like the stories I hear is the things that they're not necessarily going to make the sort of front page of the newspaper, but then the things that person has built in their own time at the weekend actually saves them a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. And it's just so cool about our industry. Well, and, and we started Mission Impossible, it all feels a bit broken. But then the question is, why are we still here? And I think it does come back down to what you're saying about people just being problem solvers. And I think we get sucked up into, we know that there's so much opportunity to improve. And actually, if you can be part of that journey, what an honor and what a privilege to be able to turn something around. And yeah, so I think we probably are all problem solvers, just cracking on trying to find the last piece in the puzzle to make it all work. That's it. That's it. And honestly, Jennifer, I think that's just such a beautiful point to finish on. It's, 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 it really is quite full circle and, and finishing the conversation with a hell of a lot of optimism. Let, let's finish it there. Thank <laughs> yeah. you so much. Thanks, Jack. It was awesome. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Sweet to see you soon.